Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the business week ended 7th April 2023. This is Ian Haydock. This time, GSK deal strengthens its infectious disease pipeline, an analysis of the first drugs subject to US Medicare price negotiations, Roche's partnering head talks about strategy, promising early Alzheimer's results for Biogen's Tau drug, and what India needs to become a world-class innovation hub. Licensing global development and commercial rights for antifungal Brexifem strengthens GSK's portfolio in infectious diseases while improving the financial health of Synexis, which said the deal would put the first-in-class triterpenoid agent in the best hands to realise its market potential in the treatment and prevention of recurrent vaginal yeast infections. Joseph Haas writes that New Jersey-based Synexis said on 30th March that GSK would pay $90 million up front for global rights to Brexifem, an oral glucan synthase inhibitor that received US FDA approval to treat vulvovaginal candidiasis in 2021. The drug hit the market that year and added reduction of the incidence of recurrent VBC to its label in 2022. Upon launch, Synexis hoped to differentiate Brexifem within the vaginal yeast infection space by noting that it's a fungicidal product rather than the existing standard of care, which is generic fluconazole, which inhibits fungal growth. That strategy has only achieved limited success at best, as Synexis reported global sales revenue of $23 million for the product in 2022. Last October, the company cut staff and ended commercial efforts partnered with Amplity, saying it would focus on its hospital-based business. Synexis CEO David Angelo told the 30th March analyst call his company will use the proceeds from the new upfront fee to pay down about $45 million in debt. The transaction gives Synexis about two years of financial runway, which it will use to advance its preclinical development efforts on next-generation triterpenoid antifungals. Under the GSK deal, Synaxis will continue a phase 3 program testing the agent in invasive candidiasis, which, unlike VVC, can be life-threatening. Overall, Synaxis could realise up to $593 million under the deal, but GSK's rights do not include China, which are held by Hanso Pharmaceutical Group. GSK will also have a right to first negotiation for the next-generation candidates that Synaxis is now focused on. The first 10 drugs that could be subject to US Medicare drug price negotiations have generally had lengthy commercial lives, underscoring one of the predominant arguments industry critics have pointed to as motivation for implementing new US drug pricing policies. Together, Jessica Merrill writes, the 10 drugs identified in an analysis published on 29th March in the Journal of Managed Care and Specialty Care will have had an average commercial lifespan of 15 years from launch to negotiation in 2026. Individually, the commercial life of the drugs, the years from launch to price negotiations, range from 10.9 years for Pfizer's Ibrantz to 27.2 years for Amgen's Embril, which had Medicare spending of $2.15 billion in 2020. Embril, although a myologic, is included because it's reimbursed under Medicare Part D, and has been on the market for more than 13 years. Under new policies being implemented to negotiate drug prices, the commercial life of many of those drugs would have been dramatically reduced, even cut in half in the case of Embril. 
The JMCP analysis seeks to identify the drugs that could be subject to new price negotiations by the US Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, beginning in 2026 following the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act last year. CMS has started to issue guidance about how it will implement the new drug negotiation program, but it's not expected to release the names of the first products to be impacted until September this year. One of industry's biggest concerns with the process is that it will cut short the commercial life of key franchises, particularly small molecule drugs, just when they are reaching peak sales. Drugs reimbursed under Medicare Part D, which are generally small molecules, will be subject to negotiations first beginning in 2026 and nine years after they reach the market, while drugs reimbursed under Medicare Part B, which are generally biologics, will be subject to negotiation 13 years after they reach the market starting in 2028. Industry leaders have argued that the discrepancy between small molecules and biologics unfairly penalises small molecules and will result in decreased investment in those drugs over biologics. The analysis in JMCP highlights just how much longer certain drugs would have been able to maintain market exclusivity than they would have been able to if the negotiation policies were in place. One way the life of a drug is often prolonged is through the US patent system and the creation of what's known as a patent thicket, which makes it too costly and difficult for generic or biosimilar manufacturers to litigate and break into the market. This has been one of the big drivers behind the push for the legislation. Determining which drugs could be subject to negotiation first isn't straightforward since CMS will select drugs based on several metrics, including how much the drugs contribute to spend, timelines for generic or biosimilar competition, and various exceptions in the legislation. One exemption, for example, is for drugs approved for a single orphan drug indication. After 2026, CMS will negotiate prices on 15 Part D drugs for 2027 and 15 drugs from across Medicare Part D and Medicare Part B in 2028. From 2029 onward, 20 drugs across Part D and Part B will be negotiated. The analysis also includes drugs that could be targeted for price negotiations in the future as well. The ecosystem between biotech and pharma has never been richer, and it's so interesting to see that symbiosis working so well. So said James Sabri, who's global head of pharma partnering at Roche, speaking to Scripps Kevin Grogan at the Swiss Giants headquarters in Basel. He noted that if you go back 20 or 25 years, there were only a handful of biotech companies and they were relatively small. We had big companies like Merck & Co and Roche doing their thing and many of them didn't even have partnering groups because everything was done internally at that point. However, the environment has changed dramatically and Roche now receives around 3,000 proposals a year from biotechs looking to work with the major. Sabri leads a team of around 120 people that evaluates these proposals, but we work closely with all the R&D people and we have the whole company working with us on this because they're also interested in bringing good molecules in. Over the years, the type of relationship between biotechs and big pharma has changed and nowadays there are some very sophisticated companies out there that are quite capable of going all the way to the market themselves, which we've seen during covid with BioNTech and Moderna, Sabri said. However, there are many that want to partner early because they want to feel part of that operational piece of being in a large company. 
Roche can bring stability and capital, but also operational expertise, drug development, regulatory manufacturing and commercialization capabilities that many of them either don't have or will never build out, he noted. As for the therapeutic areas the company is keen to ink partnerships in, Sabri quipped that we like to think we have neurology and oncology covered, but I used to say that the best science in the world is occurring outside of Roche and the worst science in the world is occurring outside of Roche. Our job is to figure out which one is the best and avoid the worst. So, even in areas where we are predominant, like neurology and oncology, we still look heavily at the outside world because there's stuff going on there that we haven't even thought of yet, he said, arguing that a small company is the perfect corporate structure for innovation. It's focused, usually on one or two things. It's driven. It has a sense of urgency because it usually has a very limited capital window and it's often founded by experts in the field from universities, so they're very proximal to the science. All those things are a perfect recipe for innovation. Roche's partnering plans extend beyond Europe and the US, and in August last year, the firm signed a licensing agreement with China's Gemincare Group for its oral androgen receptor degrader, JMKX002992, a potential treatment for prostate cancer in patients who have developed resistance to current therapies. Sabri said that Gemincare had the best androgen receptor degrader that we could find. Yes, they are in China, but that wasn't why we did the deal. We did it because they had the best science. There is great science going on in China right now, and their innovation engine is getting started, he noted. While Azai and Biogen's newly approved amyloid beta-targeting drug Lakembi is raising hopes of progress against Alzheimer's disease, Biogen has just released eye-catching early data which could herald a breakthrough against Tau, the other toxic protein linked to the disease. Andrew McConaughey writes that a Phase 1b trial of Biogen's BIIB-080 has shown it reduced levels of tau in the brains of people with early-stage Alzheimer's by 60%. This was achieved at the end of the long-term extension, which took the study up to nearly two years, with the response even seen in those crossing over from the placebo arm after six months. Dominic Walsh, head of Biogen's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Research Unit, told Scrip that the reduction in tau levels was unprecedented in human studies and contrasted with the string of antibody-based drugs which had limited impact on tau levels or the disease itself. Licensed from Ionis, BIIB-080 differs in being an antisense oligonucleotide and works by targeting the messenger RNA associated with tau and thereby halting the production of the protein. Walsh said the imaging data suggested that as the drug blocks the production of new soluble tau proteins, this was also eventually resulting in the breaking down of the neurofibrillary tau tangles. Reducing tau levels is seen as particularly important because compared with amyloid beta, it's more closely related to the clinical and cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's. However, the field of tau-targeting antibody therapies has been littered with failures over the years, including AbbVie's ABBV 8E12, Roche and AC Immune's Semorinimab, and Biogen's own Gosaranimab, which it abandoned in 2021. There remain a number of other tau-targeting antibodies in development, including at Azi, whose E2814 recently entered a Phase 2-3 study in dominantly inherited Alzheimer's.
Finally, Novartis and Novo Nordisk have long recognised India's potential in research and development. The former, running its collaborative innovation programme Biome in the country, and Novo, one of its 12 global R&D units. A recent webinar organised by industry bodies, Indian Pharmaceutical Alliance and Confederation of Indian Industry, in partnership with India's Department of Pharmaceuticals, had Novartis's Senior Vice President and India Head for Global Drug Development, Sadna Jogalkar, and Senior Novo Vice President Robin Evers offer views on what it takes to build early-stage drug discovery partnerships. With the Indian government set to introduce a research-linked incentive scheme on the lines of the production-linked incentive schemes it has already rolled out, ground is being laid in earnest for drug discovery efforts in the country. These assume even more significance against the backdrop of growing complaints about the UK government's pharma industry policies from several top executives of UK firms. With the Inflation Reduction Act also introducing pricing uncertainty in the US, and an increasing awareness of the need to look for opportunities outside US and EU markets, India's efforts to draw investments in research could pay off if it plays its cards right. A national policy on R&D is close to finalisation and will focus on strengthening the regulatory framework to facilitate innovation, incentivising investment in innovation through a mix of fiscal and non-fiscal measures, and creating a facilitatory ecosystem, including setting up frameworks for interdepartmental coordination. Rajneesh Tingal, who's Joint Secretary of the DOP in the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare, said during the virtual event. Both Evers and Jogalkar mentioned intellectual property protection, while highlighting the importance of correcting perceptions as India promotes the country as an R&D destination. Referring to the IP protection landscape, Jogalkar said... Everybody is worried about what happens to the IP if a drug or a molecule is discovered in India. So we shouldn't have any ambiguity, because that deters people from making those investments. A bit more circumspect, Evers said India needs to build an ecosystem of facilitating research and supporting nascent IP. I think the money is there, the will is there, and certainly we get attracted to the science. But it's not just about a bilateral collaboration between global large farmers and Indian farmers. I think the rest of the ecosystem also needs to be there in terms of the support from financial institutions to be able to grow those companies over time, as well as a favourable tax regime. Sharing experiences from Novartis setting up a biome in Hyderabad in early 2020 Jogalkar admitted it hasn't delivered to expectations on account of COVID-19-related setbacks, but that several projects had highlighted its potential. We have strategic partners too, but most importantly, we have also venture capitalists. So, if there's a requirement for funding, for research brainstorming, for some academic inputs, all these people can convene together at the site or virtually, she pointed out. Asked by the chair of CII's National Committee on Biotechnology and MD of Panacea Biotech, Rajesh Jain, what India could do to strengthen the ecosystem to attract companies like Nova Nordisk to invest in preclinical research in the country, Evers said globally such collaboration and partnerships work well where a strong academic foundation is coupled with a strong interest in fundamental biology research with the spin-out of small companies that are willing to partner. I think the conditions can exist within India, but it comes from strong academic skills, Evers added. 
That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. All these stories are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and are just a fraction of those appearing in script last week. Log in to access all of our content in full or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.